0: from the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University. Welcome to Depth of Field, a podcast highlighting the careers, experiences, and accomplishments of our Broadcast and Cinematic Arts graduates. I'm your host, Patty Williamson. Join me as I chat with media pros who reflect on their time at CMU, their lives and careers after graduation. Along the way, they'll share advice they have for anyone looking to work in a wide variety of media fields. And that's why we call it Depth of Field. Joining me today on Depth of Field is Chad Livengood. He is the senior editor at Crane's Detroit Business, and he is a 2005 CMU grad. Chad, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you have a busy schedule.
1: Hey, happy to be here, Patty, and talk uh, talk CMU and, and journalism and broadcasting.
0: I'm really fascinated to hear more about your career in print journalism and a little bit about how print has changed over the years. But first, let's go back to your time at CMU and I'd like to hear a little bit more about what all you were involved with while you were a student here.
1: Yeah, so I came to CMU with the intention of being a sports broadcaster. I, I wanted to be Dan Patrick, um, but I quickly found out that you have a better chance of becoming an NFL player than anchor on SportsCenter. Um, and so um, I got into working for Hall Television, uh, doing Hall Sports my freshman year, and it was a cameraman, uh, did the basketball games for WCMU, did work in WCMU studio as a student employee. And that's actually where I, I got interested in politics a little more. I start, I, there was that, I think it was a fall of 2002, my sophomore year, David Nichols, uh, the longtime uh, uh, news director at WCMU, was doing a series of interviews with every candidate for the State House and State Senate for all of Northern Michigan, for all the territory of, of WCMU, which is you know, like 40 counties between the Eastern UP and, and everything North of, of Mount Pleasant. And, he, and so they, they needed uh, people to, to run the cameras and I could just sit there and listen to these interviews talking public policy. It was so methodical. Uh, I really enjoyed David's style of just drilling down into issues, not making it some kind of a cable news talking head kind of show, but just, just, just to the facts, uh, but he also knew the facts too. So if, if these candidates tried to, to throw you know, uh, some you know, facts out or whatnot that just didn't compute, David kind of like knew him by himself and was able to sort of keep these uh, keep the guests in check. And so, I was at the time starting to take some print journalism classes and decided to kind of go into print journalism. But I, but I, you know, I learned those broadcasting skills at WCMU at Moore Hall Television. Uh, I kept taking uh, BCA classes uh, all up to my senior year, and those skills that I like. I, Gained in BCA, I, I use them every day today. I mean, uh, I would say that twenty percent of my job is doing a journalism or use or doing media skills in some other way other than traditional print journalism. I mean, I'm on the radio uh, doing talking about my stories and other stories and Cranes. I do television programs. Um, I. Do I, you know, I shoot video, I take pictures, um, social media is, you know, kind of the confluence of both, uh, traditional TV, video broadcasting and, uh, print. And, and so there's all these things that I I learned, you know, in those early days at CMU that started in in broadcasting that I, you know, kind of carry on today.
0: How much has print work changed over the years? You've talked about, really, you need to know way more than just sort of traditional print media skills that you need to know how to shoot and edit and, you know, do radio and television. How has that changed since you started?
1: Yeah. So when I was at, at CMU um, and we're taking video, the video class, uh, Kevin Corbett's video class and, 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 uh, and a few others, uh, you know, we had those, those editing suites there on the first floor, and you'd sit at this, like, at the time, like a $3,000 Avid machine, and um, some, most of what I, I did on, on, those, on those machines, editing sports and editing clips... I could do almost as much of it on this phone now. <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. This I got the, a six-dollar um, app, and I can do a bunch of you know iMovie uh, type edits, um, and it's all you know six dollars versus this this like you know small suite of of screens and, and and TVs. Now it's not high quality, but it's it does the trick for if you're making a TikTok. Um, but but print journalism, it, 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 you know, the fundamentals are all the same. I mean, I, I started out at, at an afternoon newspaper uh, at the Jackson Citizen Patriot, where the newspaper would be printed and uh, delivered to people in the afternoon. And we'd go to press at like 11 o'clock and you'd go downstairs and grab a copy, a fresh copy coming off the printer. And then you'd go get lunch and lunches were an hour and a half there. Sometimes there was a beer involved. I mean, there's like a different era um, <laughs> of journalism and I kind of came in right at the end of it. Um, I, I always kind of say that I, I, I was born in the wrong era of journalism. I should have come in. <laughs> I should have come in sometime around 77 or something, but um. So I started it in the afternoon newspaper, and it was just a different game. And um, you, you could, I, I covered Jackson public schools at the time, and, and so I would go to a Jackson school board meeting at seven o'clock. I'd take notes, you know, write it all down on a notepad. I might have, I might have used a tape recorder, but maybe not always. And then I would, uh, I go home, and and I would come in the next morning and file one or two stories before a 9:30 deadline you had to you had to work quickly there but you didn't have to work quickly right there in the in the school board meeting now If I'm covering a school board meeting like that, I'm tweeting live during it. I'm filing a story maybe before the meeting even ends about the result of the meeting because the speed of the internet knows no bounds. You just, uh, whoever is on the online first, especially in a competitive news story, usually wins the day in the social media search engine game. And so that's, that is what the name of the game is, is is speed and uh, accuracy. (laughs) Uh, That's still very important. and. Um, but then also, uh, increasingly, the depth of writing and understanding of the subject, and just when, you can, when I when I can write with on something with, with authority, it commands a lot more traffic, and it commands, it gets shared more on social media, and and it actually, I think, is more meaningful than five or six little stories.
0: What do you see as both the pros and cons of the rise of social media in journalistic practice?
1: You know, I've been on Twitter since March of 2009, which seems like a lifetime. Um, and I was initially really, really skeptical and resistant. I, at the time, I was a capital reporter for the paper in Springfield, uh, Missouri, and, and I was their correspondent in Jefferson City. And I kind of jumped into Twitter only because other capital reporters were doing it, and it was peer pressure, basically. And that I I saw that there was a competitive need and advantage and a readership that people like capital insiders, political people, would, would follow Twitter for sort of instantaneous news. And that's still the case today. Um, and, uh, now I've got, uh, a Twitter following of somewhere around 31,000, uh, folks. And so they, you know, they, uh, maybe closer to 33, it looks like thousand folks. And so they come to sort of expect that I'm got a feed of news, um, that they're interested in. And I generally keep it to politics, public policy in Michigan, you know, with some business uh, in, in Metro Detroit and, and, and more specific things about Detroit. Uh, and then I just, you know, I kind of keep it a little light. And I started this hashtag Michigan looks like this, where I just pick find people's pictures that are cool of cool places of the state and, and I, uh, and I retweet them for others to see. And so, um, so it's a little bit of personality of my interest, but also, um, uh, mixed in with just, just general news and what I think people will, you know, ought to be pay- tuned into and pay attention to. So I think it's, it's, uh, turned into a, a good tool for journalists. I'm not so sure that it's a great tool for society. There is a, a ton of misinformation uh, on Twitter and Facebook, and, uh, and and even now we're starting to see misinformation put into TikToks and Instagram Reels, and and so th- you know that that is concerning, and and I don't have the solution to that um, other than you just keep uh, and maintain um, your integrity as a journalist and keep uh, keep telling people here, here's the facts, and here's how I can sort of prove it to you.
0: How much of your job do you feel is dispelling misinformation? I think it's increasingly
1: a bigger part of the job and uh, and, and just be able to lay out to people you know, here's the facts. Uh, here's the trail of information I can point to you uh, that that proves this is this is the truth. Um, and and then just adding context, like sometimes someone will reply to me with some just complete out of context thing, and. And I will quote tweet it and say, well, here's you know, here's the context you're missing. Here's an, here's an article you can read. Here's a link to a report. You know, sometimes I you know go to the extent of getting a screenshot of a chart, you know, or something. Uh, so recently I was in some some Twitter beefs with some people about. The condition of Michigan roads. They wanted to, they wanted to actually argue that not as bad as is, as I say they are, and I said, look, here's all the data collected by like 83 road commissions. You know, I I, I don't make this stuff up, um, and and you know just lay out the you know, here's that, here's a chart that shows how the how the condition of roads is going to you know continue to go down uh, over the next 10 years, and so. I think I, I, I'm just a firm believer that you can, you can fight misinformation with facts, and, and those who are armed with the facts and understand the facts and be able to explain the facts typically you will know, have a better advantage than, than those who don't.
0: How important do you think it is for a student or a young journalist to have created a brand for themselves, either on social media or within their work itself?
1: I, I think it is important. One bit of advice I have for younger journalists is really, well, with with that Twitter handle, make that as professional as possible. Make that like the byline. So I've seen some younger reporters who will say um, their their Twitter handle is, my name is Brad, um, or um, Anna likes to write, Um, and... You know, that's, that's a screen name on AOL Instant Messenger in 1995. I mean, <laughs> um, uh, th- that's not really um, a Twitter handle you're going to want to put, you know, next to a byline in the newspaper, which is where we do. So you, you, you need to have something that is, that is presentable uh, as part of your, but then also what you put on that Twitter feed, even in college. That, you know, people can, people look at that when, if you're, you're just tweeting, like, you know, I woke up today and I had a cup of coffee, that's not content that people want to read for the consumption of, of, a, of, from a news person. I mean, you could I, I recommend if you want to have like a, just musings of, of Brad Twitter handle, then have that musings of Brad. But then, you know, uh, Brad Johnson, um, have at Brad Johnson 25 or whatever, or, you know, however you, even whatever you can get basically now on Twitter. Um, but but the same thing goes for Instagram and, and TikTok. You got to be a little conscious about, about who's going to be viewing that um, potentially. Because when you get into like, kind of like my level of reporting, where you're writing about Powerful people, they will take some of that stuff and just use it against you, uh, and and whether it's fair or not, because you're a public person, uh, you're just like them in many ways, and you and so you have to keep uh, a higher standard um, when you're ma- to maintain that brand. And then the other thing about brands is it's important in journalism is being credible and getting things right. And when you get things wrong, correcting the record, uh, don't delete tweets. Um, just if you do delete tweet, write a tweet that says, I deleted a tweet earlier that said this, because I was incorrect about it or, or right, or, or I said something that I probably shouldn't have and I forget. It and, and, um, and so I'm going to delete this because it's not helpful to, to the conversation that goes a long ways to um, uh, establishing credibility with readers. Uh, because again, I, I treat Twitter uh, like, like I'm Whatever I'm putting out on Twitter, I am—I am—is something I'd be comfortable with setting in type, and and printing in the newspaper. I mean, I, I treat it the same way, and I really stress to people that you ought to as well. That that also means no cursing on Twitter. Um, I, I find that to be really deplorable. Um, when when and I you know I'm a guy who curses, uh, and, and I you know worked in newsrooms, so, <laughs> um, but um, but I just. You wouldn't uh, drop f bombs on the front page of of the of the Detroit Free Press. Why would you drop f bombs on Twitter? Um, I think that's just that's just very very uh, poor taste and 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 makes you look bad and small.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your career progression. So your first job out of school was in Jackson.
1: Yeah, I was an education reporter, uh, covered K twelve and and uh, the community college in Jackson County, and then I left the state in March of two thousand eight to be a capital political reporter for the Springfield News Leader in Missouri, Southwest Missouri, the Ozarks, and Missouri has a a, a legislature, a part time legislature that meets in this in the state capital, like three days a week for about four or five months in the winter and spring. And so I covered three of their sessions over three years. And then I took a job in Wilmington, Delaware, in the Gannett system. That was the Springfield paper was a Gannett paper as well. And I went to work at the Wilmington uh, News Journal as a political reporter and covered uh, campaigns and, and then covered the legislature and governor there as well. And then I did that for about two years. And in February of 2012, I got a job as uh, the state lead state house reporter for the Detroit News and came back to Michigan uh, where I grew up in the Ann Arbor area. And I went to work at, you know, covering, covering the state capitol Did that for five years for the Detroit News, and then I moved over to Crane's Detroit business uh, in 2017 to uh, initially cover the city of Detroit a little closer. I had covered the bankruptcy of Detroit for the news in 2013 and 2014, and it entailed basically coming from Lansing and working out of a courthouse for for 18 months, uh, covering the biggest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. And I wanted to write more about Detroit and its revitalization, so I took on this job at Cranes that focused on that. Um, eventually, I got back into regular political reporting, and um, and have become a columnist and and uh, I have the title of senior editor, which I I, I run a um, a public affairs uh, section in Cranes called Cranes Forum. Every month, we just focus on a, a, a big topic issue, a big issue that uh, affects uh, the economy or doing business uh, and, and life in general in Michigan. Uh, it's not your know, traditional business-to-business type news, but it's it's news that people in business want, want information on and, and really need more information on. And it's pretty, partly because Cranes has got a pretty good uh, influence and audience with people that are not only you know, be business leaders, but, but political leaders, civic leaders, uh, education leaders, and so the forum section is really kind of geared towards creating conversation and dialogue and debate about the issues that matter most to like the long-term trajectory of Michigan. So that's that's kind of my um, uh, that's my the the short <laughs> uh, story of my trajectory. There's been a been a whole lot of stories in between, and I've covered uh three legislatures i've been i've worked out of so many courthouses i can't count uh i even covered a hurricane once in in delaware um uh, that uh dissipated and and uh went off hurricane irene in 2011 uh didn't actually make landfill but but they needed a reporter to be stationed in bethany beach delaware and um on the southern tip of, of delaware and i just was uh uh, just kind of uh, gullible enough to uh, to volunteer. So I thought it was going to be kind of a cool assignment. So and it was, it was just three days of hanging out in a beach town, writing about people boarding up their houses. But those, that's the kind of things you have to do sometimes.
0: Yeah, I'm glad it did not hit where you were. So how difficult is political reporting? It seems like it would be very difficult to navigate those waters how difficult is it to create relationships with the politicians that you're covering in a way that you get the information you need, but at the same time, having a distance so that you can report accurately on what it is that's happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I approach this that we can be friendly, uh, but we're not friends. Uh, and, and, and with that, you know, this naturally adversarial. Uh, relationship. Uh, Governor Whitmer, uh, I have covered her for a decade is when she was a state senator. And, um, and in the past, she's said publicly nice things about me. I'm not so sure that she would do that today um, as, I, as she's in the hot seat. And I, you know, i I've, you know, sometimes uh, bring some fire. So, um, but um, but but that is the importance of the relationship. She trusts me, I think, and uh, and um, people around her trust me enough that they will talk to me about um, you know the the policy uh, measures and decisions that she's making. And I have found a lot of my success has been around being able to get to the people around. The, pr- the principal. They're the ones who really pull the strings behind the scenes. And, and so when I could be tuned in, I tune into those people. I pay attention to what they're doing. And also, I, I, pay, I pay attention to what the principal is doing and why they're doing it. I'll give you an example. It, Rick Snyder, the former governor, took Detroit through bankruptcy and this was a progression when he when the city of Detroit filed bankruptcy in July of 2013. It was the culmination of about three years of work by Rick Snyder's administration. They, they passed this new law when they came into, into office, the emergency manager law that basically allowed for a, a takeover of a failing city. And the, the voters repealed that law. And so then they had to pass a new law um, replacing it. And that was even stronger than the last one. And I followed all of this progression up until they—they were taking, you know, doing all the procedures to declare a state of emergency. And um, at that time, I I said, "Hey, I want to cover this. Keep covering the story because this is not simply." the city of Detroit going through bankruptcy, this is the governor of Michigan taking the city of Detroit through bankruptcy. And um, I was the only capital reporter that actually really covered the bankruptcy. And eventually, you know, um, the, they had to come to the legislature and, and ask the lawmakers, the governor did, for uh, $360 million to help settle the bankruptcy. Uh, and settle the, the pension debt that the, the city of Detroit was trying to um, uh, rectify. And because I had been covering the story for a year, I understood knew the issue inside and out better than anyone and could write about it with, with authority, I and mean, people would turn to me for the news. And, 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 and there's other subjects, you know, you had to pick and choose what you, what you write about. So at the time, there was a scandal in the state prisons Related to the to the um, the quality of food that they were feeding the prisoners, there was a lot of rat uh, droppings and such showing up in like in the con- the food contractor had been subcontracted. At some point, my competitor, the Detroit Free Press, was just owning that story so much that I you know I decided I'm going to cede the, the prison food scandal to him because I I'm going to focus over here on something else, and that's where I've had a lot of success in my career is getting focused on a, on a certain subject I've written extensively over the last six, seven years about auto insurance issues and the cost of auto insurance and and sort of a bloated, system um, and the changes to the system and how that some of those changes did not work out as people might've wanted. And, um, but that's been from, you know, just doing the work. I I always tell people that small stories lead to big stories and you got to do a whole lot of small stories in order to get to that big one. Um, And in investigative journalism, like people just don't show up at your doorstep with the manila envelope and, and and the, and the, and the full of like, documents someone doesn't want you to get your hands on it doesn't happen. I mean, it happens in the movies, um, but, and you don't get to meet deep throat in a, in a, in a, um, in a a parking garage in, in DC uh, every week either. I mean, I I have, have some sources like deep throat Um, uh, they're obviously not telling me like, you know, uh, keys to a scandal uh, (laughs) involving the president, you know, but, um, but I do have a vast source network now and, and some of them do, tell you just things that uh, when they trust you, that, that they'll, they'll okay, I will trust you that you can get this right, and here's the information.
0: What are one or two of the stories that you think people should most be paying attention to right now? Yeah, I,
1: I mean, I think for this election year, pocketbook issues are going to command the day, and, uh, and inflation, we have 8.5% inflation last year, highest level of 40 years, that's affecting so many facets of of, of American life right now uh, that I think that that's going to be the dominant issue, and um, I, I think how our political leaders respond to it is going to be you know the story to watch uh, for from a from a politics standpoint uh, and also a policy standpoint. Um, I mean, there's been a rush to try to cut taxes in Lansing right now. I've called it tax cut fever, but tax cut fever only goes so far. And and I, I, a lot of what I do is is sort of document. Okay, we, we we have a lot of needs in this state, <laughs> and and um, like on roads, I, I could never write enough about roads. And just before we got on this podcast, I was writing about roads uh, because we simply have underinvested in our roads, just as we have underinvested in education in our state, and we're starting to see that. We see that we see the the effects of it in our. You know, our, how our schools perform, how our children perform you know, compared to the rest of the nation, and then, we, and then in roads, we see the we see the effects of it on our flat tires, and and our uh, and our infrastructure that is clearly not what the rest of the country has for infrastructure, and so um, those type of issues are what really kind of get me focused, and I and, and I I zoom in on those. Each and every day, because I think that's what's on the minds of people who are just trying to go about their lives every day and and
0: just live. What are your proudest moments from your career so far? So a couple of years
1: ago, I did a story about driver responsibility fees which were a a, a tax that the legislature had imposed of a Republican legislature with Democratic governor, Jennifer Granholm, had basically a tax on municipal traffic uh, violations that gave the state a a new source of revenue. And at the time I found out that there was $630 million of unpaid debt among 300,000 residents in the state. Uh, and some of this debt dated back to the beginning of the program in like 2003. And some of these folks, all oh, the owe money. They had been in prison. They come back, return to society. They had like a $10,000 bill waiting for them. It was a perpetual poverty tax. They kept people from getting a driver's license. It did, and so then they couldn't get work. And then they couldn't provide for their family. Then they could they couldn't possibly pay for the bill. It was just completely un, unsustainable for people to to be able to, be able to do this. And three hundred thousand people, you know, is pretty pretty significant. Three percent of the population of the state, um, and of the adult population, it's like eight or nine percent. I mean, it, so it's it, a significant number of of able-bodied adults who just simply could not. Re-enter the economy and society because they had these fees that were tacked on to like a speeding ticket, um, and and then and then when they didn't pay it, there was an interest penalty, and then there was an annual penalty, and and then if they if they happened to spend five years in jail, they they come out and the thing had just gone from two thousand to ten thousand um, dollars. I wrote a big couple of big stories, kind of writing and kind of exposing this uh, and laying out, uh, you know, how how bad this was for people. And I started getting phone calls from around the state uh, from judges uh, who thought these things were egregious and from people who, whose lives have been just basically kind of like held down in society because of these, these fees. And uh, eventually, uh, one day, the Speaker of the House called me and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to get rid of those fees. And I, I said, well, what do you mean? Like, he's like, oh, we're, we're going to repeal the law, and, and, um, and we're going to uh, not only repeal it, but, but we're also going to just do a, a forgiveness. Um, and they forgave all $630 million of the debt. And tens of thousands of people got their driver's licenses back in the state in a matter of like six to nine months. Um, and I heard from a lot of them. Um, and it was pretty, pretty cool to see that kind of effect on, uh, from, from my reporting. And the thing about that is I learned about that story in the most oddest place ever. I was at a fancy lunch at the Detroit Athletic Club with an executive from from DTE Energy who was chairing Mayor Duggan's Workforce Development Board. And he was kind of going on about the issues that they were facing that were affecting the ability to get people, to get Detroiters employed. And he mentioned this, and I said, well, how how much are we talking about? He said, that's like 18,000 adults in Detroit. Oh seventy78 million dollars and I was like well what is it, what is it statewide <laughs> and he's like I don't know it's a good question and so then I went and asked the Treasury Department to give me a spreadsheet of by zip code and then when I did that ran the ran the sum on that I was I was blown away at, at the number I had to check it a couple times because uh, it just was such a gigantic amount of money uh, and just a huge, number of, of of adults who just were kind of held back in society because of a law that just well, whether it was well meaning it, it didn't uh, didn't serve a lot of good purpose long term for, for people
0: it must be gratifying to feel that you had a hand in making things better for a whole bunch of people
1: yeah yeah I, and, and i'm a big believer that journalism can do good and by using your platform you can you can bring light Injustices uh, and and help people help sort out issues and help bring clarity to the policymakers because it didn't take long for for lawmakers to get on board with just completely sunsetting the law and and for and forgiving all the uh, the debt that was really deemed uncollectible debt.
0: What advice do you have for? folks who are looking at maybe building a career in journalism, what do you think they need to do to be prepared to work in the industry?
1: You got to know the basics. Writing is just so uh, crucial. And whether you want to go into traditional print or, or if you want to be in bro- just a traditional broadcast, you got to be able to write. Um, and even if you don't intend to actually work in the media but you want to be in, you, know, you want to get a broadcasting or journalism degree or 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 IPR, writing is just absolutely the entrance into anything. And critical thinking and be able to take down information and spit it back to somebody in a digestible form uh, is just the currency um, of this business. And so I just tell people that just get as much writing experience as possible. I, I, I tell people, I tell young uh, students at CMU when I come talk to classes, like, go work in CM Life, get as, much, uh, get as many clips as you can, go work at Warhol Television, learn all the tools, uh, you're going to need all these skills, and, um, and, and, but, but more, the more repetition, the better in order to um, really be ready for the jobs uh, that are now and the jobs of the future, too.
0: Well, Chad, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule today. It was great to talk to you.
1: Hey, I'm happy to do it. Thanks a lot, Patty. Nice talking to you.
0: That's another episode of Depth of Field, a production of the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University. Thanks to my engineer, Michael Pawarski, and my producer, Allison Biss. I'm Patty Williamson. Thanks for joining us.